1: .NET Rocks, episode 1046, with guest Jimmy Bogard. Recorded Monday, September 29th, 2014.
2: Hey, 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 it's Carl and Richard. We are at NSBcon in some room somewhere where... There's brick walls and a lot of echo, and uh, you might hear the occasional subway rolling the, yeah, by. Yeah, the Manhattan Bridge is right on the other side of this wall. Yeah. Hey, we're in New York. Hey, you know, what can you do? Seriously, we can't bring the studio with us wherever we go, so no. it's, it adds to the character of our stupid little show. Well, and it's always fun to do stuff in person, too, right? Absolutely. Uh, Jimmy Bogart is here. We'll be talking to him in a minute, but first, let's roll the crazy music, because I got something good for Uh-oh. Better Know Framework. <laughs>
3: All right, buddy. What do you got?
2: Well, uh, this was recommended to me by uh, somebody who works with distributed teams. It's uh, Slack.com. Oh, okay. Slack.com, and Jimmy's nodding his head in approval. Likes it. I do. I do. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, basically a communication platform that sort of takes uh, what you normally would do by email and applies it to projects and teams. Nice. And so you have messaging and uh, discussions. That happen among certain people yep. on, for a certain project, and it's all there. And history is there, and they have apps for every kind of uh, mobile device as well, except for Windows Phone. They don't have a Windows Phone. <sighs> iOS, Android, Mac, and Windows. There you go. Um, you know, it just
4: reminds me back in the strange loop days when we would use IRC yeah. to communicate with the distributed team, and it became the most valuable part of that. Was that it kept the logs. Yeah. So you had this. How did we solve this problem? And it sounds like Slack's picked up on that, that it's actually the
2: record keeping. It's the most valuable part. They've picked up the Slack. Ah, Dum dum. No, no, seriously, <laughs> what's great about this is that, uh, you know, if, if you have Outlook or an exchange and everything, yeah. it's nice to be able to keep uh, threads organized and all of that stuff. But, you know, if you're using Gmail, you know, it's, it's much a, harder it's to a deal with that. Different.
4: But even when stuff's in Outlook, only you could get to it right you know what i like the idea that you know the biggest thing we got when we were doing this stuff in IRC was after a firefight after we'd figured out what the problem right. was you know three hours later exactly. the fact that you had this package you could basically go here's how we solve that problem and you can yep. see the order of execution so
2: and uh, so far it's free so there you go i Slack. like how price like that slack.com know it learn it love it i hope you use it let Good us one, know dude. let us know if you like it and you're using it for app next
4: yeah that's cool that's
2: right so who's talking to us, my
4: friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1036, the one we did just recently with Ward Bell when we were talking about disconnected web clients. And feather boas. And, feather boas <laughs> and gold lame pants. Because, <laughs> you know, Ward Bell. <laughs> now Jimmy's shaking his, <laughs> his head <laughs> for my stuff, shakes his head for <laughs> yours. <laughs> I like where this is going. And i got to read this comment from John, not only because it's a great comment, because John's Gravatar is a TRS-80 Model 1. Yeah. There you go. John says, great show. I work on a disconnected .NET thick client app that goes through similar challenges. Which mm-hmm. I to, you know, Just to remember that disconnected is disconnected. It's always hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a medical application. So we've got it so that the dot goes from green to red when the network goes down. The doctor is barely aware of the situation. There are many years of experience in the code for that application. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of seamless dealing with are we connected, are we not you know, that's the evil thing I find with software. When you pop a dialogue to let me know how you feel, I don't care. Yeah, right? That's right. The moment a piece of software thinks its opinion is more important than my own, it has made a mistake. You're it so right there. Incorrect, right? Your VPN connection goes down. Fine. Do not interrupt me to just, tell me.
2: Right, just don't do anything just, until it comes back.
4: Yeah, die, fix it, do something. But interrupting me is the worst case scenario. Yeah. So clearly John's addressed this head on. Right, uh, Connecting and disconnecting to the network is just like checking out and checking in files from a source control system. If the changes between the server and the local machine are in different areas, the merge is dead simple. If the changes are in the same area, then someone has to manually merge. Well, that's the truth. Thinking about network reconnection in that way made a light bulb in my head get significantly brighter. (laughs) Checking out code the same way as your application going offline and a check in it is the app reconnected to the network. Who wants to see the manual merge dialogue? That's the big challenge. Because if you give it to the guy who just reconnected, he's going to always say his stuff's more important. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's like, how do you actually have good arbitrage around that? But yeah, that's, and there's no, no simple answers there. So, John, thanks so much for the simile. It's a great comparison, network connections, the source code check-in. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android,
2: Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Windows 8. And that brings us to Jimmy Bogard. Jimmy is the chief architect of HeadSpring. He's a member of the ASP Insiders Group, the C Sharp Insiders Group, as well as being the MVP uh, for ASP.NET. Uh, since 2009, he's also the creator and lead developer of the popular OSS library, AutoMapper. Welcome, Jimmy. Good to be here. Good to see you in person. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Who was harassing you about AutoMapper at uh, dinner last night? Uh,
3: every other person does.
4: Because <laughs> it's one of those. You never planned on making a big open source project, right? That just sort of got away from you.
3: Yes, uh, you know, just you know, something useful for myself, and I thought might be useful for other people. And it turns out it's useful for a lot of other people. And now
2: they expect things of me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Being punished for being creative. <laughs> yes. like, no, that's why open source. So you could add to it. Not <laughs> me. You do it. You do it. Yeah, that never goes off well. <laughs> yeah. No,
4: you are now my personal programmer. You will build my feature now. Now. Or I will stop using your
2: source code. So I had this realization at dinner last night, the speaker's dinner. You know, I asked. Uh, some new speakers that I had never met, you know, what are you talking about? And they're talking about, oh, this with service Bus and that with service Bus. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, all these content, all topics today and tomorrow are around End service Bus. <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough. It's kind of funny how that works. <laughs> yeah. We're not really used to going to conferences where the, the focus is around a particular product right. and all of the scope that it covers. But it's just tells you what a deep subject service buses are in general. Absolutely. Yeah so and what are you speaking on I'm speaking on scaling in service
3: bus of course
2: yeah and that seems to be what you use a service bus for in the first place is because you anticipate scale
3: well and uh, that's one of the, of the one of the
2: one of one of the reasons why I use
3: it yeah. uh, I do a lot of work with back-end systems as well so doing a lot of asynchronous work those things that you build you know those horrible batch jobs on yeah this is you know the savior of those really difficult to maintain systems is those sorts of things.
2: Now, there's lots of technologies that have existed to do this sort of thing, you know, like message queuing and, and all of that. And, and we don't always see where like a service bus fits in the picture. Uh, I look at things like, um, SignalR and being able to scale out on the, on the backplane idea. And I wonder, you know, what, uh, what the difference is and why I would choose one of those technologies over, over the other. Well, it's, one of the things we see, it is it is still rather new in the
3: .NET space that because the MSMQ API was so horrid to deal with for a very long time, yes. no one really messed with it. What I do find is that people are building these sorts of systems. Imagine you have that database table that has a single column that says, is processed, yes yeah, no, yeah. and something that's checking that to see if you have work to do. Well, this just makes those sorts of systems much more easy to build and much more explicit, I find.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Plus an interoperability, you know, being able to to update different mo- different pieces of a larger scale application without having to move it all at once. Like, right. Yeah. There's, all there's those a lot sorts of complexity things. gets absorbed by a bus, but that's we've done whole that's shows true. on buses. That's I, true. And I appreciate I your insight around the large scale stuff because that's a lot of folks just don't get there. Like they don't know what
2: happens when yeah. things get big.
3: Yeah. I I kind of envy their ignorance sometimes. <laughs> it's, like,
2: it's like the laws of physics change. Yeah. Yes. Point, yeah.
4: Yes, they do.
3: Yes.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, I read one of your blog posts not long ago uh, talking about scaling on an MVC app. Was that ASP.NET MVC?
3: It was, indeed, yes. So four, the latest um, and greatest? It started with, I think, the preview three okay. of MVC, and then now all the way up to four. It's been upgraded continuously since then.
4: And and just keeping on going. Remember when MVC was supposed to be a niche product? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. For the two or three people that uh, that want it. It really, yeah. Why did you choose NBC for that project, or did you? Oh, you know, uh, yeah, we to, did.
3: It was a, it was a bit of a stretch. Um, I mean, to choose a Preview Three tool when we'd first seen it being debuted in Austin, actually, at the All Dot Net conference in Austin right. with um, the goo Yeah, uh, coming down and, and. Isn't that when he literally
4: wrote it on the airplane? I, actually, yes. That's yes, that's it's the story. Awesome, isn't
3: it? That was a story. Um, and I had a lot of experience with web forms. Uh, Being, I actually came from the ASP classic days, right? Web forms itself was just baffling to me. It's like, why can't I just do regular forms and, you know, I know HTML. Why is this so hard? Yes. And so when I saw MVC for the first time, I think it was with the, uh, if anyone remembers the Castle Monorail project. Yep. Mm. Um, we had used that, uh, on a couple of projects. And then when we saw MVC coming out, we thought, well, Microsoft, you know, (laughs) it's (laughs) going to be supported and all those good things. So,
4: well, and clearly the goose baby. Right? yes get that yes, guy right. get stuff done if he likes this <laughs> nah. it's gonna be fine it's a good place to bet things yes his
2: minions yeah yeah
3: so yeah we started on uh building a, a site on preview three uh back in the day and then it's just grown since then how many users gosh six years i think
4: six years has been going on yes and how many
3: simultaneous users um, it's difficult to say it's, it's used by county governments in the state of Texas. Okay. And so we're in the thousands of employees. Right. Using it on a daily basis, uh, through all sorts of agencies and all sorts of walks of life, uh, using this product. So it, and it's, so it's sort of kind of an internal app then. Yeah. It's a, I don't think you can actually get to it from the public internet. It's right. all behind the scenes. Mm. Um, but it's, it's something that all these folks use on the, as part of their daily job.
2: Yeah. So productivity on is pretty important. So um, let's start with how you would scale or attempt to scale WebForms app and then sort of the limitations that you hit up against, and then we'll talk about MVC scaling and how that solves these problems. Sure. Um, so looking at uh, WebForms in particular,
3: so going back a step, I've had to deal with scaling in a number of different vectors, and that's one of the things that it's difficult to predict going into a project to know exactly what direction you'll need to scale. Um, so I've worked on I've worked on MVC projects that have you know two or three pages, but then have a million different views a day. Yeah. And then on the other end is you know a hundred or so users, but then hundreds and hundreds of pages that I have to maintain over yeah. time. Um, I've never found a system that does both. It seems like you can only really scale in one of those factors, either complexity mm. or volume. But trying to do both just Ready seems like both. it just yeah it just falls apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, particularly in the complexity vectors, what I've had to deal with mainly in this application, um, we just had a difficult time trying to understand the right patterns of usage. Uh, you know, typical thing you see in a webforms app is the business logic is in the you know, the, the,
2: the code form, behind, yeah, the code will.
3: behind, page, button click yeah. sort of thing. Uh, and so trying to f- tease that apart, we just had a much more difficult time than we did on MVC, uh, which just seems like the underlying patterns made it easier to scale out complexity wise. Mm-hmm. I know there's probably a few ASP.NET web forms guys that all say, I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's just. Uh, there is an essence to web forms, which is that the rendering is done on the
4: server. Right in the end, it's going to compute HTML for every page and right. send it down to the browser,
3: which is funny because I see things like Angular, which to me is like web forms of the client side. But right, no. but <laughs>
4: yeah, you're not wrong, right? Yeah. Is it that okay? Let's leverage all those clients and let them do more of the rendering. But MVC almost seems the halfway in between. You've separated the concerns, but there's still a fair bit of work going on on the server side.
3: Uh, yeah, and that's honestly that's why I like it. Anyway, I, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of. Complexity client side. It seems like, and. and I've gone down the web forms caching
4: path to hell, partial yeah, mm-hmm. caching and things like yeah. that. And like, And you can occasionally make things better, but then when it unravels, you don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's black box syndrome. It's and just, if you yeah. have
3: to look at terms like donut hole caching, you're probably in a really bad space. Yeah, you're <laughs> in a
4: terrible space. Now, um, yeah, 75% of this page is essentially static, but this piece and this piece and this piece are not. Yeah. Right. So we're going to wrap these in tags so that it'll recompute those, but not recompute that. It, it, and no yeah. one knows what's going on no one, right. yeah. and and then you're supposed to create an expression for
2: when to expire that cash and hope for the best and what's the <laughs> source of truth you know what's, yeah. what's what's real when you're looking at the page yeah. and i'll
3: see people do that but then still have you know 70 other assets being downloaded in every single request right so not mm. <laughs> doing the right. other, and the and other go,
2: stuff yeah asp.net caching sucks right wait a what sucks exactly <laughs> yeah so, uh, so MVC. Let's let's talk about that. I mean, what are the diff- What are the things that are off the table and therefore not usable, and we didn't need them anyway? What you know? What 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 do we get? It's funny that uh, I remember when the Goo first presented MVC to the
3: the all .NET crowd so many years ago. One of the first things that he debuted was the concept of testability. Mm-hmm. That I can test. I can test controller actions. That makes it really easy to unit test that. Um, it turns out that's not really that important after all really no and i is some of the large systems i build so uh, the last two really large systems i was involved with these are systems with hundreds of controllers and over a thousand actual individual actions okay and not a single controller unit test in the whole system
4: wow and was that apathy or
3: no it was we actually started out you know, we were told that this was a good thing to do. Right. And we all nodded our heads saying, yes, indeed, this, you know, unit tests are good. Go ahead and write these things. Mm. I just turned out at the end that, um, they didn't actually add any value to the right. system at the end. It was one of those, your test looks exactly like the implementation. Right. Is it doing the thing I was just telling it to do? Yes, it's doing the thing I told it to do. Okay, we're good. Close, good F5, enough. it breaks. Oh, okay. <laughs> obviously, there's something else. Yeah, you know, there's a lot more so things the, going on. So the on. tests
4: you were building weren't catching the problems.
3: Well, there's, um, there's just a lot more going on to requests right. in an HTTP web request than just that little bitty piece you see inside the controller action. Right. Um, you have the filters going on in ASP.NET. You have all the handlers. Right. it doesn't you know i could do all the things i need to do but then i get to the view and there's some syntax error right and it breaks
4: because so, so we get back to the sort of selenium test models you know what just test as if you're the browser and show me that there's errors you the individual unit tests don't tell you anything compelling
2: no
3: so mm. we just don't write them at all right It just doesn't add any value well, i also whatsoever. think you've got
4: a nice unit of concern there right when you're down to a controller it's pretty coherent what the thing is like it's hard to fool you
3: it is pretty difficult i mean it it just the act of separating out the rendering of pieces mm-hmm. from the actual actions and even something as simple as uh you know, the web forms days when I had the page.ispost back, taking that set of code and just putting it off somewhere else was also a really big win. I gotta mm-hmm. tell you, I
4: just gotta chill when you said is post. Yeah. Back. I know. <laughs> just <laughs> like that brings that, right little, back. that little shutter. I, said, I need a drink now. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. All the things I thought I was frustrated about in web forms, it really just came down to put my HTML to the side. Right and yeah. separate out gets and posts yeah and that's really all i was looking for that's yeah.
2: all i actually needed was separate these different pieces of well piece and that that's a huge deal because i mean you came from asp and you've done a lot of yeah. asp i yeah. did and i i caught the asp bug too where you could have two models you could have html that encapsulates data or you could have data that spits th- out th- html and or both, both, and both and at the same data. time which is mostly what we
4: did and all three of those scenarios are pretty evil right evil. Like evil, <laughs> evil, this, evil, this evil. blending of those things and, it, and the php guys are still doing it yeah uh, yeah it's it that's what's scary is is when you mix these things together as so concat- you mainstream. separate pain goes away
2: uh-huh. or at least goes down
3: yeah so that was one of the big pieces we saw that yeah. we thought mattered and
2: it just didn't yeah
3: in the end was all the testing pieces
2: so the the razor syntax then buys you a lot of that um taking a Taking away of all of the concatenating strings and doing all that crap. What are, and and so as for as just in terms of scalability though, what t- tools do you have there?
3: Um, the biggest ones we've used these days are going to be things like all of the bundling and minification tools, right. because we found that you know we can optimize the HTML as much as we want, but then again, if you're pulling down dozens of JavaScript files, then you know that's really just going to be hampering. Is that the it's only performance, way this thing breaks
4: down? Though. it's just volume.
3: About half the sites I work on, it just breaks down in terms of volume. The just other half too of, many bytes. Yeah, exactly. And using leveraging these tools, those client side tools that uh, we see, especially coming from the JavaScript uh, folks, things like Require JS. Yeah. That you know, I only need these four JavaScript files. Being able to really easily declaratively do that. Yeah. And then plugging in with uh, some bundling to be able to make sure that's just one request that you're get coming and getting all those files down.
2: So that seems to me like a performance tuning or an optimization thing, which is really important if you're going to scale. But scaling to me is, you know, scaling out with more machines, multiple machines. And how do we keep the data that how do you keep track of the data that we in web forms would use session state for or maybe a, a SQL server? I mean, mm-hmm. does, do those things still exist in MVC? And uh, Are they the same problems that we had in web form? They do.
3: I'm I'm more the camp that thinks that session is evil. Yeah. Personally, the the idea of a, a state being held on the server is what we have databases for. And whenever you have these issues of you know I need to have some sort of uh, correlation to make sure I get back to the right server, or then I have to push things to uh, some other backend. I, if websites as big as Tumblr don't need session. Yeah. Then why do we? Yeah. I don't think it. I don't Yeah, it just seems like once you get down that path, you're just in for a world of hurt.
4: Well, how far did you need to go with this uh, government app till you went to multiple servers?
3: Um, We did. We uh, one of our biggest uh, issues uh, early on was that we actually relied on session for uh, some things. So as soon
4: as you want to go to a second server, you got to be sticky. Yes, life gets complicated. Uh,
3: Yes, and it it made it even more difficult. We started doing push notifications uh, via SignalR actually. Okay, and um, just making sure that you know when they connected to a server for um, gosh that they never uh, came off that server again for the duration of the session. So uh, those sort of things we, we hit early on and uh, were difficult problems to solve. But luckily, uh, the guys that are building those sort of tools anticipate these sort of issues. Right. And uh, we're able to... Did you go to multiple servers because of
4: performance? Like people were complaining the site was too slow? Or is it more reliability? Like um, Going to multiple servers isn't a trivial thing to do. Like It's, it's expensive and it's complicated.
3: No, um, it was not an easy thing to do. It was pretty complicated. But we initially went on because of a couple of reasons. One was... Uh, for performance, and the other one was for reliability. Right. So that you know, zero downtime deployments—that was a really big issue when you have thousands of people using your site for their job on a daily basis. Right. You really can't go down. It just—it's yeah. just really not an option. But so it we, is a
4: daytime job, isn't it? Like, isn't there dark hours where you could do updates and things?
3: Um. Yes, for the for some pieces. Right. Uh, we built this as one system, so we did have pieces that were being used at all hours. Okay. Uh, this was for uh the county governments locally with the law enforcement as well as all the way from uh, someone getting in trouble all the way to going to court.
4: Right, right. now you're in, yeah, so that's a 24 hour day service. Like, I, I come from an e-commerce and a banking background where right. it was, we didn't have a second that went by without a transaction. Right. And and so now it's like, you we really can't
2: be down. It's thousands of dollars a minute.
3: Yes, yes. So,
2: so you're using a database to sort of store all the things that you would, would have done in session state. And I guess you're taking advantage of local storage in the browser then to keep right. keys and things like that. So we can easily look at it. Local
3: out. storage was something that, well, it didn't exist six years ago when we right. started building this, or at least didn't exist in IE6, which was one of the browsers Ooh, we built. Wow, <laughs> right. Government. <laughs> yes. XP with the IE6. Of yes, course. And, yeah. you know, you can't rip XP, you know, the yeah. cold dead hand sort of thing. So, um, yeah, those sort of things really didn't exist. We also found, too, that the things we were intending to keep in session state, turns out were actually important to the business anyway. Yeah. that's You imagine, you know, my first e-commerce system, I stored shopping cart in session. Right. Which is a horrible idea because they closed their browser. And like, wait, where's my items? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah right. It's, it's gone. And those sort of things, you know, we'd want to pull metrics out of, abandonment rates and It turns out that's actually important data you don't want to actually lose over time. So it just winds up gravitating towards the database anyway.
2: Yep. Yeah. And it's, that's where it's going eventually. So you might as well put it there. Yep. Might as well. Exactly. Yeah. So you went to multiple, you're using MVC, you're going to multiple servers. You quickly
4: figure out that you've done stateful stuff in the website. Exactly. You start doing a redesign to push all that stuff out of the web servers.
3: Yeah. And it wasn't too, Horrible. The only really difficult part is because session is effectively a dictionary. Yeah. That trying to okay now what is our schema exactly because I can just sure. throw anything I want in there and yeah. just magically. And I have yes. <laughs> so now you going to think about it ahead of time. It turns out you actually should think about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, trying to understand exactly what our usage was and pulling it out so that we did have any shared state in the database was a little bit of effort, but uh, in the end was definitely worth it.
4: So how many servers?
3: At this point, um, it's up to I think. A dozen different servers. Oh, okay. And Not all
4: web servers, like some backend services and stuff as well.
3: Yeah. So we've, had, you know, over time, we've also had to build APIs. Right. As people want, uh, you know, they want apps for their mobile devices. So right. we're building APIs on top of our system.
4: You're not just doing the responsive web design browser all the way.
3: No, no. It turns out that when you build uh, an app in 2008, it's yeah. a much different ecosystem for mobile device than it is today. So we couldn't just, eyes our way out of right our well,
4: 2008 there They're, that stuff didn't work yet
3: no and even the website we built back then was all um xhtml oh Beca- man which yeah. which is both good and bad i mean good in that it was uh because this website needed to be accessible right it turns out it's super easy to build an xsd to validate xhtml right and just say does it pass schema validation yeah good or bad and you know just having a good thumbs up thumbs down that was great But to try to go to more modern websites, uh, a bit of a problem.
4: We keep thinking about XHTML as just a failed experiment, but it built a bunch of good sites back in the day.
3: Yeah, I uh, kind of miss it. There's a a few presentations about people talking about what, you know, XHTML, now you can have, you know, tags that don't need to close themselves like BR. Right. Like, well, I kind of like that. I don't (laughs) want to remember the ones that close and don't. So we couldn't just take the website and say, let's just go responsive. So yeah. building up separate servers for APIs. Mobile clients. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just actually made it a lot easier to not try to cram these two things together
4: right it sort of makes it in this is what real world apps look like right okay we're going to build an mvc app oh wait we need to deal with mobile services and you know you end up with this collage of stuff to provide all the services that the customer needs
3: and it turns out what people are wanting to do on a mobile device is much different than what they're trying to do on a desktop right they just true they're the reason why they're using the mobile device is because they're out in the field somewhere they're 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 in a squad car or something like that they don't need to have this full experience and are doing very targeted, limited activity. And right.
2: therefore, they need to get to those activities as quickly as possible. They can't be going through a whole story of this and that. And Yeah, uh, so that brought a whole different level of
3: needing to scale. Mm-hmm. But we did find um, that our lessons learned as far as, you know, uh, minifying resources, making sure that the information that went across the wire was as small as possible translated really well to the mobile space. Right. The only thing we really needed to worry about at that point was things like security and things like that because. Little details. Yes. Yeah. Uh, someone loses your device. want to make sure that people can't get access to potentially, uh, you know, personally identifiable information that's right. not public. So, um, you know, those sorts of things we had to talk about as well
2: Happy indeed. Time to make up a batch of hash cookies. So what? we could turn this intelligent conversation into a bull session. <laughs> I don't know, I'm reaching. I you got all the words in there. Oh, uh, you know. I but bull local storage doesn't I mean but hash local storage doesn't make any sense, so they had to be hash cookies. Okay. It's actually time to get okay. It's actually time to give away a experience subscription by DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com/superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Uh, today's winner is Andrew Pardowin from mm. Queensland, Australia. Congratulations, friend! Yeah, golf clap for you, sir who was very excited to win uh, this product and, uh, you know, send it back an email saying, I never win anything. This is awesome. (laughs) That's great. So uh, good for you, Andrew. And uh, he just won the D experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from dev express. If you don't know what we're doing here, go to dot net Click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away great sponsor products like the D- Experience subscription. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. And Jimmy, we'd like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy?
3: I think that would be good for about one Xamarin license. <laughs> <laughs>
2: for thirty days. Yeah, no, no I'm kidding. That's about twelve
4: hundred bucks for the studio license of iOS. Yeah, and twelve hundred again if you want the Android, the Android one. Although I think you get discounts if you have an MSDN. You do get too.
3: MSDN discounts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but it's steep. Well, it's uh, it's cheaper than having to actually pay two teams to build two different apps. That's yeah. true. It's and so
4: true. And, you, and you've that, been up against that, I'm sure. Yeah, people yes, forget indeed. that. Um, and so, you know. actually, can get four of those licenses, <laughs> <Right. Yeah.
2: laughs> Or a MacBook Pro. Yeah.
0: Well, yes. Yeah. Well,
2: and it's true. You can't get away from not having a Mac if you're going to build iOS apps, right? And, and I know? got I got by with a Mac Mini for the longest time, but it is a sort of a accessory that you have to have. On your PC. But right. now I I'm, now I'm MacBook Pro and Xamarin all the way. And parallels for your... Windows parallels world. for Visual Studio. And it yeah. runs great. That's always a safe bet, man. Mobile
4: tools. Exactly. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Uh, you know, I think we sort of brushed by this the main thing you focused on with performance, which was bundling and minifying. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I've done talks on on this particular topic. And I talk about this, you know, this size, total size of the package matters. But round trips matter more.
3: Especially on mobile devices. Yeah. yeah.
4: Round trip, because the, the number of milliseconds per round trip is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you got, you got 50 resources on a given page, which is not that many. No. But the IDC now, I think the current standard is almost a average page size. So pushing a megabyte and 200 objects. Wow. Gee, That's I wonder why scary. the site, because, Desktop bandwidth's getting so high, right? Yeah. We're getting 100 megabit connections and things and, and ping times in the 20, 30 millisecond range. And you could
2: suck down 200 objects, but you sure can't on a phone. No. Nope. <laughs> and, uh, unlimited data plans are slowly going they away. They were taking them away again, aren't they? Yeah. So do the you ask anyway.
4: So what are you using to bundle and minify?
3: Uh well for the longest time we were using the out of the box tools from MVC. Right, the script manager stuff. For yeah, very for a very long time. Um I recently though 4.5 they're very good. They, yeah, they were they were very good. Yeah, and they even had browser cache features built in too. We depending on the kind of application you're building though, it can fall down in certain certain scenarios, so we're starting these days to actually using javascript based bundling tools. Right. And these days, most of my actual builds are either in Grunt or Gulp anyway, with JavaScript build tools. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because I just don't want to learn PowerShell. Right. Yeah. And it's just Power not. PowerShell's your
4: friend, man. I'm just telling you.
3: <laughs> I yes, it's. <laughs> if I have to touch a build script once every six months, I'd rather be in a language that I use. Right. And so JavaScript makes it easier. But these days, uh, there's so many tools being used on on javascript sky from the from really from the node folks mm-hmm. that it just makes a lot easier just to say, "Well, this is a bit of a solved problem, and now I have this whole new set of tools available for right. me uh, that are coming from those folks
4: so we break out our JavaScript libraries because it's easy for us to organize them, yeah, and then we know that the browser preferred to only have one giant JavaScript library that does everything, yeah. So, how do you hide that transformation in a way that you can still debug a page?
3: Well, that's where some of the bundling tools start to have built in features with browsers to allow you to map whatever you know, crazy bundle minified thing right. out to actual source files. Uh, so, that's why we, re- that's one of the reasons why we gravitated towards the uh, JavaScript based tools the is the grunt approach. Exactly. They yeah. had those, they had this built in Chrome tools to be able to debug. Um, whatever we're doing so they'll
4: actually unravel their own bundling to tell you it, you had this error in
3: ember yeah you can almost think of it as the uh, PDB files right it's a mapping out you know the compiled version out to your actual source files nice. so with using those uh, we especially wanted to make sure that when we went to production that something didn't break because it bundled minification yeah. yeah so making sure that locally we were doing the same things we're doing on the server side uh, with when we actually went to production. Just eliminated that little bit of risk from having to go through every single page right. to make sure everything works, and now it's just the seamless experience locally and uh, on production as well.
4: And it's just one of the steps in your build process. Then you just like,
3: well, with the tools these days, um, they can actually watch your source files. So when you change a JavaScript file, it will automatically see the change right. and do your bundling minification on the fly. So you don't actually notice anything. As it's developing. happening all the
4: time. Yeah, and, and do you browse your browser cache as well for that too. Then.
3: Uh, no, not as much. Really, just, um, really just the, the minification tools. Right. Also for CSS files. So yes. we are using SAS and less right. for mm-hmm. CSS. And so when I change something, I don't want to go through a compile step in, yeah. in my IDE. I just wanted to do it, which is one of the reasons I'm really excited about ASP.NET vNext and the Roslyn project is yes. having that same experience with C sharp as I do today with SAS, less, and JavaScript.
4: Put, putting all those things together. So the result, Using grunt on your JavaScript, less on your on your CSS is one JavaScript file and one CSS file on the page. It's actually sent to the client.
3: Yes, although we have found in some cases that the minification is not necessarily a good idea.
4: Doesn't actually give you we need anything.
3: Uh, or the I'm sorry, the bundling. Okay, doesn't give us what we need when we have browser caching enabled for these different individual JavaScript files. Right. So jQuery, for example. If I download jQuery once, the browser's not going to go grab it again because it knows it's not been modified. Well, if I bundle jQuery and every single page there's different scripts that are going on, that means it's downloading. A whole lot of JavaScript that doesn't change right. throughout the entire for each site. Each
4: page, each bundle yeah. is a little different. Exactly. Plus, you can now, I mean, you don't have to host Java, jQuery yourself at all. In fact, they encourage you not to. You use something at the CDN endpoint anyway, right? You've used the Google path for jQuery, those sorts of things, so that, A, they're super browser catchable. And even when they're not, it's not pushing against your server anyway.
3: Right. Hmm. So we sort of gravitated towards a pattern where we're only using bundling in cases where, the files are actually consistent across the entire site. Right. CSS will be the the prime example.
4: Right. So it's a shared bundle across the pages.
3: Exactly. Okay. Um, otherwise, the JavaScript changes too much from page to page, and we don't really want to have this situation where we just have one ginormous JavaScript file that right. has to get loaded and then right. everything starts working. Yeah. That just just killed performance for us. So saying okay, let's not let's just focus on minification first and then bundle only when necessary mm-hmm. and only in very targeted scenarios. For these exact reasons, right? You know, if you've downloaded, you know, require js once, or you downloaded jQuery once, you probably don't need to download it again. Well, just
4: leave those ones out of the bundle, right? Like all these known files, especially ones that are CDM positioned, you don't want those in your bundles. It's your code that could probably be bundled.
3: Exactly. So that's where we sort of gravitated towards is being much more judicious and not just saying bundle all the things. You know, (laughs) it just didn't seem to work well. Have, Have you ever
4: gone down the path of? Uh, just embedding the JavaScript directly in the page, making no lookup pages.
3: It's funny that uh, we have actually. Yeah. Uh, it's when I when we start building these single page apps, it's it's funny because it's almost everything is in that one single it's in request. That one page. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the templates, all the logic, everything just comes down all at once. So we do this for landing pages,
4: like in an e commerce site right. where there's one page everybody's going to hit every time. It's the most traffic page, and it absolutely has to be the fastest. Having no objects, just everything embedded, even spriting images, was the fastest page in the end. Yep. At the expense of making it utterly unmaintainable. (laughs) Like, just could not take care of this page at all. But boy, it was fast.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of those things that you you choose. There's performance and maintainability. Choose right. one. <laughs> yeah, right.
4: Well, it, it it is a balancing act, right? I yeah. mean, I think grunt and less and those tools have done a good job of making more maintainable fast pages by having yeah. good tooling around it. But the 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 whole pull everything into the page approach is just pretty horrible.
3: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it does work okay in situations where you have some sort of content management site on the back right. end that will effectively compile an html page for you yeah, render. right
2: but otherwise yeah it's um <laughs> it's it's difficult to sort of have go to that layer of abstraction without black boxing or without you know just making it seamless it seems are there any really good tools coming up on the horizon that you can see that do that a good job of it
3: it's difficult to say because there's if there's a tool on the horizon it probably is already out there yeah. and just not yet in vogue in the JavaScript community hmm. for example we used uh, we used I think it's gulp for the longest time and then suddenly one day everyone decided that grunt was the right way to go right. I might even have it backwards because I can't even keep track it's always you know <laughs> now there's a new the one, one coming vr. out called spit yeah. <laughs> I think there's actually a drinking game to see, you know, npm <laughs> yeah. install moun.js, and then if it, it hits, you get, a, you get a drink, and then pass yeah. yeah. out in about 30 seconds. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Gump,
2: crawl, spit. Yeah, spit.
3: So we do, use, uh, we do use things like RequireJS, though, to yeah. be able to manage those dependencies and be able to correctly predict what files we actually so need you to So you request. mentioned that
2: a couple of times, and none of us if we ever dug into it, but tell us what RequireJS does in a nutshell.
3: Well, Require.js lets you declare in your application a single module and then declare all the modules that your module needs to work. And so what Require does is say, okay, I depend on jQuery. It's a big dependency on, chart. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's able to go, it actually reminds me a lot of dependency injection tools, right. mm-hmm. that it's able to go figure out all the tools you need, all the files you need, bring it all back together and say, these are, ju- these are the four files you need for this single request. And you don't have to map that yourself and script tags at the top of your file, which the order of which you need things in as well is Mm -hmm. always a nightmare. So it (laughs) figures out the right order in which to uh, actually pull things down and what specific ones to pull down.
2: Yeah, that just makes it a lot easier. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool tooling. Does it, 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 it? it ever get so high level that it bites you?
3: One of the difficulties people do have is, if you're using Require, you do have to declare your modules in a very predictable format,
1: Mm. which
3: it doesn't seem like any of the major tools have done. So what we wind up having to do is, oh, we need to depend on, I don't know, backbone.js. It doesn't have a module defined, so you now have to go declare that yourself. Mm. Now you have to go learn how to declare modules when you were just wanting to write JavaScript. So wish
2: Backbone would just do it.
3: Exactly. And there seems to be some... Uh, some answers coming down the pipe with the next version of JavaScript, with modules being declared directly in the language. But until then, it's something we have to do ourselves.
4: Well, just because they come up with a language doesn't mean that they're actually going to browsers and implement it too. No, that's and, true. And last time I looked, you were still supporting IE six.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, we were. Now it's now we get to support IE seven. So, oh wow,
4: <laughs> progress. Why would they stop at IE 7? As soon as you crack the IE 6, like, you can get to 8 and 9 pretty easy.
3: Uh, yes, indeed. And so you know, whenever we have that version of IE that is green, uh, that's evergreen, then mm. we'll just be very happy. Until right. then, it's just a lot of manual testing. Right. And, and they're yeah.
2: not looking at Chrome or anything else. Right. It's just the next way. version of JavaScript yeah. It's been a while since somebody said that on the show. <laughs> and so casually too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I thought we were done. What do you know about the next version of JavaScript?
3: I not enough, it feels like. Yeah. I it seems like uh there's a lot of things I like about it. I personally I cannot stand CoffeeScript. It just seems like an abomination. Yeah. But JavaScript itself, there's a lot of things I really like about it. Just the fact that it's Got this really clever form of declaring objects as functions or functions as objects, what do mm-hmm. you want to do? Mm-hmm. And the prototypical uh, inheritance can be pretty far powerful. And so what I see in the next version is really cleaning up a lot of the annoyances that I've had for JavaScript over the years. Things like the Lambda functions you have in C Sharp, yeah. like that arrow syntax. Yeah. It'll be in ES6 or ECMAScript 6. Right. Uh, that was wow, one of the big cool. ones.
4: It'll be interesting. We'll see how it actually gets implemented, right? Like, it's easy It's easy in the proposal stage. Right. Say, hey, we're going to do lambdas. Yeah. But what does it actually look
3: like? It's wow. actually there. Um, yeah. All the annoyances I had with the var keyword. Right. So this really weird scoping uh, that you had, which had function scope as opposed to block scope. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which took me back to the days of C, where I had to declare <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> all my variables at the top of the function. Um yeah. With uh, JavaScript has the let keyword, so it actually does have proper block scoping.
4: Nice. And you mentioned, of course, you with C-Sharp. How do you feel about TypeScript
3: then? Um, I'm sure there's a good use for it. you sure there are. For someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's solving a lot of problems I don't actually have. Right. Okay. okay. I like the idea of verifiable JavaScript. That is, you know, I, it's correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things I don't... I, I never really wanted classes in Java. That wasn't a problem I was actually having. Um, this, the, some things that are coming down the pipe and ES6 right. solve a lot of these problems. So it's my hope that uh, TypeScript is just a nice embellishment on top of what you already have with JavaScript. Right. But hopefully those things get, ju- get just put down to the individual language. But I'm getting, I don't know how many different languages compiled on JavaScript these days. Right? Right. I'd just rather right. use
2: the, the one language. Why not and, just use JavaScript?
3: You know, that would be nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any other pet peeves about JavaScript?
3: oh gosh where to begin um the lack of any the any good numeric types in it mm-hmm. yeah there's the the That's one type <laughs> you know one plus one is 1.999999 yeah, yeah. right
4: <laughs>
2: i mean doug crockford talked about yep. that it's like we need a number type yeah yeah it stores numbers <laughs> and so is there anything in the in the next version that addresses that a new
3: um perhaps there are things coming down the pipe, but what people have wind up doing is just pulling in external libraries that have those sort of fixed notation types just going that route.
2: Yeah, so and they work okay with the rest of JavaScript. I mean, that seems like it'd be weird. A type <laughs> is sort of fundamental to a language. Well,
3: it? what I've sort of gravitated towards is not needing to have those sorts of things on the client side to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow.
3: If I'm doing something that needs to add numbers, and show a result, then I'm probably doing that on the server side as well. So just saying, okay, whatever whatever JavaScript object I'm giving back from the server, just have those values already computed. And if
2: you're doing something graphical, you know, well, it needs to be fast. Uh, you can't really yeah, do that on the server. Yeah. So there are cases.
3: To be yeah, clear. for sure.
4: So it's an MVC app. You've scaled it significantly now. And along has come the sort of SPA model. I don't even want to say necessarily SPA per se, but everything rendered on the browser, just calling to services. Yeah. Right? Given the option, would you rewrite into that model and get rid of the whole controller side, like lower the load on the back end even more?
3: No. I have a hate-hate relationship with <laughs> SPA's myself.
4: <laughs> Angular in particular then?
3: Yes. Okay. Well, um, uh, amongst others. We've right. Being in a on a project for so long, it actually is is fairly easy to measure how long it takes to develop features. Right,
4: mm-hmm. six years. You've got a known pattern now. It's very
3: well known, yeah. um, especially with such a wide application with literally over a thousand different screens. Wow. It's actually pretty easy to say, well, you know, it cost this much in the past. How much is it going to cost today? Mm-hmm. At least as much. And we consistently found that the more complexity we put on the client side, the more expensive the system becomes. Really. And we just haven't found that. A, what I think it's distilled down to is in a normal server-side web application, you have this lovely feature that after you post something to the server, you do another get right. that wipes the slate clean, and you get Your, entirely new HTML Right. you are be able Your to use. Your browser's
4: fresh and shiny and ready to go again. Exactly.
3: It turns out stateless is pretty nice to work with. Yeah. And that's ultimately what we found was, um, you know, besides just complex interactions on the client side, that you can't really get around that. Mm-hmm. But it's just replacing... A normal application with now everything on the client side, I lose so many things that I had in the server side right. that, um, that you know, haven't it, been well replaced yet. I haven't seen it well replaced yet. We just got uh, done writing a fairly complex Ember.js application. Mm-hmm. And it took us quite a while to figure out how to build applications as easily as we did on the server side, mm-hmm. you imagine uh, using Razor, for example. Right. Uh, yeah. Very often we use the strongly typed views to be able to build our HTML. So I say, I need a text box for the first name mm-hmm. and it yeah. knows how to build that HTML. Well, on the client side now, I'm having to do that all manually myself. As well as when the form is posted up, I still have to go grab the input, post it to the page, and then do some activity based on that validation and all sorts of junk. Yeah. So it just seemed like we were just having to Write more code. Right. Both on the client and the server side to be able to support this sort of application. And in the end, the users didn't didn't really care.
4: Right. (laughs) Doesn't matter to them at all. But I feel like you're headed you know, as soon as you got in that mobile app and you were starting to build these service level calls for everything, Mm -hmm. you can almost see there are patterns now for web development that would just call those services as well. And I don't want to hang on spa per se, just this idea that even if you're moving page to page, most of the work's being done by the services.
3: And it feels like right now we're still in the early the early stages of how people are building applications. It took right. how many years to, for people to really understand good ways to build regular server-side HTML apps? Sure. A long time. And so it seems like we're we're just making those steps. So although it can seem like, oh, gosh, What's the you know what's the JavaScript framework of the month now? Yeah, I got to go learn something else. Uh, that it just seems like people are iterating and figuring out the right way to build these sorts of applications.
4: I feel like that on the SPA side at least, like Angular's kind of taken the lead. Eisenberg's playing, you know, we're now working with them as well. Like this is now the library. It hasn't changed for a while. It's evolving for itself, but mm-hmm. it's not like a new hotness has suddenly appeared.
3: No, but I mean, having had this application been around for over six years. Yeah.
4: You've got a much longer view on this. Yeah.
3: You can't just say, you know, we're going to go replace backbone with Angular. Well, and it's
4: super hard to justify replacing a thousand pages. Like, that's just crazy
3: talk. (laughs) No, not at all. So there, there are places where Angular does shine, but my first reaction to it was this looks like web forms on the client (laughs) side for (laughs) good or bad. I'm sure it does a lot of good things, but one of the libraries I do have my eye on that I think does solve the problems better, is a library from Facebook called React.js.
4: Yeah, that's really yeah, interesting. That's, it is interesting. I think there's a whole show there at some point, because it's a very different philosophy. It is,
3: right, but it's consistent with the normal server-side philosophy, right. which is unidirectional data flow, read-only, uh, no two-way data binding, one-way data binding right. throughout the entire system. And I think that was where I got hung up on the most on a lot of the SPA frameworks was I didn't actually want two-way data binding. Hmm. That just introduced more complexity. I wanted this really simple unidirectional data flow. I wanted to effectively wipe the slate clean right. because the server is the source of truth, not the client. Right. So whatever comes back to the server, I want to wipe everything clean. Yeah. And it turns out that's actually how we've built our Angular apps. Right. Well, Right. When we make requests to the server, we get back a response in the form of some JSON model. We'll actually replace the entire model on the Angular side and say, this is your new this is the new reality. Go redo whatever you're doing. Right. And that seemed to have us end in the most sane endpoint.
4: Yeah. And, and this one smooth directional flow of data, you know, you're sure you're writing data back, but you're coming at it from a different
3: direction. Exactly. Don't go mm-hmm. back
4: the way you came because it's different.
3: Exactly. And not that, that having users complain about, I thought I approved this invoice. And then I refresh the page and it says it's not approved. Like, well... We assumed it was approved, but we need the right response back, and yeah. now I have to worry about that. So, yeah, it's just not worth yeah. dealing with, I think.
4: So it's a clear chain of command. And coming from a scaling background, same thing, right? It's like exactly. Two-way means maintaining state
2: too long, one source of the truth, and it has to be the server. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. It, it keeps it more coherent. So on the complexity side of scaling, that's obviously a big part of the equation, and we, we haven't talked about that. What, what's your strategy for dealing with complexity?
3: Well, it turns out that similar to scaling in performance, there are a lot of things that you have to do in terms of scaling complexity that you don't have to do in smaller applications. So a lot of the things I write in my blog are really looking at systems of a very different scale that I actually wouldn't even attempt Mm -hmm. on smaller applications. It's just, Mm. just not worth it. But early on in this system, I was looking down the pipe of Knowing that we had to build a system with hundreds and hundreds and eventually over a thousand different screens. Right. And how are we going to be able to efficiently deliver that system in the budget we've been given? Right. And that's really where it, it took a few iterations to look at the patterns of usage we were and patterns of building in which we were building the application and saying, okay, given all this, what are the things I can pull out to make a little bit more declarative, a little bit more less hard coded, yeah. so that we There's have only more so many
4: UI patterns across a thousand pages, right? Like, can you abstract all of that and go, "This is one of these, and this is one of those, and repeat them?"
3: Well, that's it. Actually, turns out there are a few of those patterns. So yeah. it's something like um, being consistent about where your labels go over the inputs, right? Well, we never wanted to have that argument with our business owners to say, you know, today. I like to have the label next to the text box. Right. <laughs> and today I want it on top. So being consistent and say all that logic to build out that input, both the label and the input element is going through one single path. Right. To make sure that if they do change their, it wasn't really about them changing their mind. It's about enforcing consistency. Right. I remember actually we had a situation where uh, the date time picker we used back in 2009 or whatever it was mm-hmm. was not accessible. So, we had to go across our entire site and change that daytime picker to one that was actually accessible. Right. Well, that was logic in exactly one place that was building the HTML element for a date picker. So, there's only one place we had to go to to actually fix that. You fixed
4: that that in the hundred different locations that date picker was. I don't even
3: know how many places it was used, (laughs) right? It doesn't (laughs) matter. It was uh, fixed everywhere. Even tools like AutoMapper, for example, that was something we looked at. We're going to have to do this pattern hundreds and hundreds of times what Mm. can i do to make this easier right Mm -hmm. and that came out of that as well things like um we were wanting to write integration tests for the ui so Mm -hmm. ui functional selenium level tests right if you've ever used any of those tools they're not very fun to use no Um, especially the ones that record your interactions and then play it back well if you just move any html around everything starts breaking
4: yeah the super brittle tests
3: exactly so one of the patterns that we put in place was this idea of having our UI test actually written in C-sharp mm-hmm. using C-sharp level drivers that could drive browsers. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. DOM invocations.
3: And one of the other things we saw was that typically people, when they're they're testing web applications, they assume that I have no knowledge of actually how the application was built.
0: Right. Yeah. And
3: so it's just this very black box thing. Works, works well, I guess, if I'm testing someone else's website. Mm-hmm. But if I'm testing my website that I built, then... Why shouldn't I take advantage of everything I know about how the application was built? So we'll do things like every single data element, either for editing or displaying, is going to have a well-known ID for that element. Right. Well-known predictable ID. Yeah. And since everything is driven off of these models we we're building out, we're building strongly typed views, so there's always a class that represented the data on the screen. Right. Then my UI tests were actually expressed as interacting with that class. It's a hierarchical
4: expression set now. You know what the name's going to end up being. Exactly.
3: So we said, okay, instead of talking about things in generic terms of a magical string that I know my ID is something. Ta-da, uh, yeah. CTL underscore 103, whatever, right. that comes out of Web Text Forms. Text number 47. Exactly. <laughs> uh, we actually knew that this is the deterministic ID that we were going right. we to be able to use. And, well, and
4: you're using binding too, so I mean, you know what it's bound to. You, you know, exactly know everything what you need to. to know to figure out what that ID should be. Exactly. And, and that's the best kind of naming convention. right? It's actually implicit in the, in the app
3: itself. So we really drove towards this idea of building conventions around how we built our application. Mm -hmm. So that when I'm building a a text box, it's always the same. So whatever that code path is, just make it consistent. Mm -hmm. And say, I'm just going to force everything down one single path. And leverage that same technology on my UI tests so that they know exactly how the HTML is built. And I can now write my tests really in an application-level terms as opposed to an HTML-level terms, Which... I met too many teams that build out their UI tests, use all these recorders and stuff, and the tests start breaking, they start breaking, and eventually they just throw it all away that's because right. it's just start too much again. to maintain right. over time. Exactly. Now, that's something I would use on a smaller project when I'm looking at hundreds or even a thousand screens, then this starts to become a big deal.
4: Well, and you do want the tests because you do want to see where stuff is wrong. but exactly. you, They pretty need, much need to be generatable you just can't write that many
3: no exactly You certainly
4: can't record that many
3: no no and just managing it over
2: time is just impossible we've right. seen teams dry just not possible okay so uh anything else that you want to cover before we wrap it up here jimmy
3: no i think that's i think that's about it um i don't really have a an address to send donations for automapper because <laughs> 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 but you're you know welcome to buy me a beer
4: yeah well, well, make sure we got a link to the GitHub project so folks can go take a look at it and yes, maybe indeed. contribute to it. Yeah. And where are we seeing you next?
3: I will be at Oradev All right, in November. Cool. Yeah. So I think that's where I'll be seeing next.
2: Malmö, Sweden. Yes, indeed. Great show. Awesome. Jimmy, thank you very much. Yes, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I love And awesome. we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.